0: Grab a seat, grab your Bible, and if you will, grab your Mark journal and turn with me to page 14. I want to begin back into our Mark series, and I almost wish that I had the time to do sort of a previously on, but I don't have time to go through what happened before, so instead, let me just kind of give you a, here's what's next. Jesus has been going through his ministry, and he's come into the last week of life before his eventual execution on a Roman cross. And this death will be both effective for removing your sins, but also imparting God's grace and forgiveness to you. And so that is where we're leading, and this is such an important week that this entire last third of the gospel according to Mark is dealing with that week. And today's text actually is not Sunday, but falls according to the Markan flow of things on Tuesday. Of Passion Week. And I want to begin this morning with maybe an idea. And here's the idea. I want this morning from our text to show you how not to be a Christian. Most of the time when we get together, we talk about here's a step or here's a practice or here's a process for living more like Jesus. But this morning, I want to take you from the text, and I just want to help you see how simple it is, how effortlessly it is to not be a Christian. You say, well, what, what is, that doesn't seem right. We're going to walk through this because here's what I want you to notice. Jesus wants to be very clear about what it means both to follow and not to follow him. The entirety of the gospel is about walking with Jesus step by step. And so, in this text, beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus is going to lay this out. And so we begin, Mark chapter 11, verse 27. They, this is talking about Jesus and his followers, they arrived again in Jerusalem, which was the capital city of the Hebrews. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Verse 28. By what, what's this word, church? Authority. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do This, let me kind of catch you up. What happened is on Sunday of Passion Week, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He is proclaiming peace as the coming king. People hail him as such by crying out, Hosanna. He then goes to the temple, but because it's late, he only looks around he goes, hangs out in a city or a place called Bethany, and then on Monday he clears the temple. He drives out the money changers because they were using their position to mistreat, to steal, to overcharge people who were coming to make sacrifice to the Lord. And this made the religious leaders mad. In fact, the word we'd use back in middle school or elementary school, we'd say, They were honked off. Any of you ever use the word they were honked off? Anyone ever? Maybe that's just Nashville. We were weird. And so they were honked off at Jesus for this. And so they come to him now on Tuesday. And as he is in the temple courts, walking around in this vast section, most likely the outer section, which was the area for Gentiles, non-Hebrew people, they say, who gave you the authority to do what you've been doing? And Jesus, seeing their hypocrisy, says this, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. By the way, John was the one who came before Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus, saying that the Messiah is coming. You need to repent, change, turn away from the way you live and come into relationship with God. He said, John's baptism, was it from heaven, meaning from God, or was it from men? Tell me. So the religious leaders discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, eh, we don't know. So Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So there, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. That's in the Josh Diggs version, okay? So you have this conflict that is growing. Jesus is uh, exerting authority. He's coming in. He is upsetting the religious status quo. The religious leaders who had power in this sphere get angry and say, who gave you the role and the right to do what you're doing? And he says, I tell you what, since I know your heart, you're not really asking. You're trying to trick and trap me so you have legal grounds, hear me now, to kill me. So let me ask you a question. And in his brilliance, Jesus asks the perfect gotcha, because whatever answer they give positions him on top. But they say, "Eh, we don't like this, we don't know. So Jesus says, fine, I'm not going to put myself in position for you to have me executed. And then Jesus takes it a step further, because understand, Jesus is not merely in the business of winning an argument, church. Jesus wants to win your soul, not just the argument's. And so he says, hey, let me tell you a story. I mean, everyone loves stories, right? How many of you like stories? Anyone in here? Um, let, let me do it this way. How many of you like to go see movies? Anyone like to see movies? What about television shows? Anyone like TV shows? Even documentaries or, or, or the Discovery Channel where you've got like a lion about to pounce on an elk. They set it up as a story, right? They sort of zoom in, you've got the lion, You've got the beautiful elk kind of bouncing around or whatever it's doing, eating, drinking. And they set it up like a story. We are captured and captivated by stories. And Jesus was brilliant. So he says, let me tell you a story. Now, it wasn't called a story. It's called a parable. A parable literally means parabole. Two words put together simply means to cast alongside It's a story that is put alongside life, a make-believe story to help us understand something real about the world. A phrase you may have heard is that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Here it is. He says this, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a great watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent servants to, uh, to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit Now, here's what's going on. Jesus is using a picture that they are very familiar with because if you were to travel throughout the Middle East in those days, and even to this day, you would have found vineyards just covering the landscape. And it was a common practice for someone to come in, buy a plot of ground. They would clear it of stones... They would use those stones then to create a fence or a wall around the vineyard to protect it from animals and bandits. They would build a tower where someone would be stationed to watch and to guard the vineyard because vineyards were very important to an economy. And then they would plant the vineyard. They would get the trellises and they would set it up. And in many cases, a wealthy person would then hire people to come in and manage the vineyard. And the owner would then go either plant another vineyard and sort of franchise himself or go somewhere else where he preferred to live. And then upon harvest time, send someone from himself to receive a percentage of the grapes. This happens today when you have a farmer who leases ground from someone else. So that's what's going on here. Everyone knows exactly the picture he's using. So he goes on. At harvest too, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Verse 3, But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head. Ouch! And treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and they killed that one. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Now let's just pause. So are you getting the picture? There's an owner... He has this land. It's his land. He's done all the work to prepare the land. He has now brought in hired help to manage his property. And when he sends his servants to receive a portion of it back, they refuse and they abuse. Now, with every parable, one of the things we have to do is decide and understand who are the characters in the story. So let's put our imagination hats on for a moment here. Because to understand what Jesus is saying, you need to understand who is who in this text. And here's sort of a rule of thumb. In almost every parable, there will be a character who represents God or Jesus, and there will almost always be characters who represent someone who does right and someone who does wrong. And so follow along here. So the very first one we want to look at is actually the vineyard. Now, if you and I were... Hebrew scholars, like the men Jesus was talking to, were. They would immediately, as we would immediately know, that this picture of a vineyard was an Old Testament picture from Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah was a great prophet. And from God, Isaiah spoke a vision to the rest of Israel saying, Israel, you are like a vineyard. God made you. God took care of you. And so when they hear these words, automatically the people know, oh, the vineyard is us in this story. Well then who's the owner? Well it makes sense because they knew that God was the one who chose Israel and made Israel a nation that the owner is God. He established Israel, he protected Israel, he watched over Israel in the tower. And then God established leaders over Israel from the line of Aaron, the prophet or the priests who had care for, and we're supposed to provide sacrifice between God and man. And so the third are the tenants. The tenants are the religious leaders. And the way you know this is if you go to verse 12, they're really mad at Jesus because they realize, hey, that story's about us, and they don't like it. Well, so who are the servants? Well, the servants are the Old Testament prophets that God sent one after the other, after the other, after the other to Israel to say, turn from your sin, return to me. And over and over they were abused and in many cases killed. In fact, Isaiah, the one who wrote the prophecy in Isaiah 5, was executed by being sawn in two with wooden saws. You have Amos the prophet who is beaten to death with a staff. And you have Zechariah who is stoned in the very temple space that Jesus now stands and speaks. So when he says this, they're going, We know exactly who you're talking about. Now there's one more character in the text, and we're about to be introduced to this character. Are you ready? Verse 6. Look at what it says. He had, this is the owner, he had. One left to send, a son, whom, say this with me because this is so, so important. Ready, ready, three words, ready? Whom he loved, who he loved. How many of us, your mind's going to roll back now to Mark chapter 1 and verse 11 at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized, a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my son whom I love. And he says, there's one more that God sends. And the owner assumes that surely you will not abuse his very own son, his flesh, his blood. Surely you will see the shamefulness of your ways and you will change. But instead they do this. The tenants said to one another, verse 7, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and notice this, and threw him out of the vineyard. This is a picture and a prophetic word from Jesus that later that week, they would literally take Jesus out of the city and on a hill execute him outside. This is the picture. And Jesus says, so what do you think is going to happen now? How do you think the owner is going to respond now, I want to just, because our time is short, I want to give you just a few things to think on here. And here's the question of you. Are you ready? How not to be a Christian? This is so easy. So if this morning, if you're going, yes, teach me, how do I not be a Christian? This is for you, okay? Here we go. But if you don't want to follow the advice, then just do the opposite of this. Ready? How not to be a Christian is simply this. Believe you are an owner of your time, talents, and treasures and not a steward or a manager. If you want to not be a follower of Christ, just have the mindset that my time, my talents, my abilities, my treasures, my finances, the things I own, that they are mine and not God's. Because that's the whole issue with the religious leaders. They were established as managers, as stewards of what God owned. And they thought that they were no longer stewards, but the owners of God's stuff. So let me give you just a few things. If you kind of want to get a picture, you say, okay, what's the difference here? Let's just kind of run through this. Uh, An owner simply owns something. I know this is so deep this morning, isn't it? They have ownership of it. It's theirs to do with. A steward says, no, 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 I don't own. It's all on loan. Um, An owner says... Mine. Everybody say, mine. Oh, come on. Get your inner two year old out. Let's do this together. Everybody on the count of three say, mine. One, two, three. Yeah, that's what an owner says. It's mine. But a steward says, yours. An owner says, I produced it. I worked hard. It's because of what I've done. This is mine. But a steward says, no, 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 no. You produced it, you put the vineyard together. You even gave me a position that I did not earn, a place that I did not buy. It is yours. You produced it. An owner says, I get to choose how to use. But a steward says, you, God, choose how I use. Do you see the difference? Uh, Let me me give you a a different picture here, maybe one that works better. Most of us don't own vineyards, although... um, In Middle Tennessee, I had three friends who owned vineyards, so I won't assume anything in this church. Uh, In fact, where I get my hair cut, some of their relations don't have vineyards. They have, well, distilleries. We won't get into that, though. So, okay. So we'll move away from that illustration this morning. Let me give you one you might get. On Thursday of this past week, we had a men's fellowship night, and uh, just a lot of fun. We were here in the cafe, about 40 of us, were eating wings and pizza, getting heartburn. It was fantastic. Watching football, some of us started talking about, and I don't even know how it came up, but the question of, hey, um, what is the worst job you ever had? And, and we started sharing the stories of, of, well, this job and this job. So one guy's like, well, man, I was working in a place and it was like 120 degrees and I lost a bajillion pounds that summer and it was just horrible. And another person says, well, you know, I kind of liked this one job except for the fact that my boss almost killed me. But, you know, and we all thought, well, yeah, you, you kind of win if your boss, you come to the office and you're going to be killed. And, and, and so we were all sharing our stories. And I didn't have a really great one, but, but I had a couple, you know. and one of the ones that was maybe not the worst, but one of the most unique was for a couple of years in college, I got to be a shoe salesman at a fine Italian leather shoe company. And, and I can tell you, even 20 years past, that I can remember distinctly a ton about this place. In fact, I can tell you, um, the best shoe for sales was the Elvira Women's Shoe. It was a mid-sized pump, had a nice deep toe box, came in six different colors. The most famous one was burgundy, second only by the champagne color. And I tell you what, that was a gold mine for us. The most expensive shoe in this place was over $1,200. It was the holy grail of sales. And if you were commissioned and if you could sell that and if they did not bring the shoes back... Life was good. And because I was a student, I never opened the store. I always had to close it because I I could only work late hours, and so I would work. And and you got really good if you wanted to make money, because the way it works on commission is whatever you sell, you get a percentage, right? Owner gets most, you get a percentage. And so I got really good at at my job. Uh, I wasn't the best, but I was pretty good at it. And I learned, you know, you find ways to connect with the clients. So they'd say, well, I want to try this, I want to try that. So you bring it out. You'd also bring a few extra that they might like to look at. And so then you'd get down. And, of course, you, you kind of help them with their shoes. You take them off. And, and, and boy, whoo. <laughs> uh, by the way, just a little, little note. Um, you know the Vicks Vapor Rub that you can use for your chest? Great thing. Just rub a little bit right there. It is just brilliant, okay? So you get down there. You take the shoes off, and and you learn what to say. Like, oh, madam, your bunions look beautiful this evening. (laughs) Sir, is that a sixth pinky? I noticed that's incredible. I mean, you found ways to connect. And at the end of the night, whenever I was done working, I would have the job of balancing and looking over the inventory, you know, what did I sell? What did we not sell? Did, we, did the receipts match with the sales and all that? Because I was responsible to make sure that the inventory matched what we told the owner because it was not mine. Can you imagine what would have happened if I just decided one night, you know what, this uh, cash drawer looks kind of nice. I'm just going to take what I want. I can tell you if I did that, I would not be here today. I would be an evangelist in the Loki local jail. So here's what I want us to do. I want us just for a moment to think about it this way. God set up shop in Chattanooga. He's opened a store called Your Life. He gave you a place. He gave you inventory of time. He gave you resources such as your finances. If you have children, they are a resource. Your spouse is a resource. Your position, your reputation, that's a resource. He gave you treasures. He gave you abilities such as your talents, what you can do, your mind, your hands, your body, all of it. You are a store from God. And he is in the business of setting up franchises. And he's been doing this for many, many years. So here's what I want to do. I want to help you identify, are you a steward Or do you have an owner mentality? Because the way to be a Christian, the way to follow Christ, is to see yourself as a steward, not as an owner of what you have. So three questions, and we're going to call it a morning. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, when it comes to time, stewards say, I create margin in my schedule to meet unexpected needs in my church and community. Stewards say, I have 168 hours every week And because it does not belong to me, I use the time in ways that help me, that that bless me, but I always make sure I have more time left so if a need comes up, I can meet that need immediately. Are you a steward or are you an owner? Let me give you a second one here. Stewards, when it comes to their talents, their abilities, stewards say, I regularly use my abilities, both physical and mental, to serve my church and the community Physically, maybe you have abilities. I think about so many of our men and women who were out here yesterday for our Upward Sports League. I think about Derek who coordinates and does a great job. They use their abilities to share and to pour into young men and women to be able to be a blessing to others. But that takes margin. That takes coordination of time. That also takes willingness to use the abilities for others. I think about others in our church. I think about my friend Gary Carson, one of our elders, who uses his brilliant mind for numbers and such and helps uh, people with their taxes during tax season. And I think about so many... You who use your uh, your skills, whether it's with business or in other places, and you use that to be able to help other people. A steward says, all that I have is for the use and benefit of God. I rarely use my abilities to serve my church and community. And the last one, when it comes to treasures, I manage my finances well so that I can prioritize giving generously and consistently. That a steward says, God has given me this much money, this many resources, and I am managing them as best I know how, so that when needs come up, I can be a need meter. I can help, I can be a part of things, and I was thinking about it, Um, I may have shown this to you all before, it's just kind of, it's one of those things I love, but in my Bible, I have... um, a bookmark that was made for me when my son was about three years old. You probably can't see this real well, but his cheeks, he's got these great big cheeks at the sage, and he's got this grin, I love it. And so when I open my Bible, this is what I see. And it occurred to me this morning as I was sort of thinking over these notes, I, I thought, you know, our treasures are not simply our finances, but they're the people that God places in our lives. And I was thinking about my, my kids, I was thinking, am I stewarding them well? Uh, earlier this week, Evan, I shared this on Wednesday, but earlier this week, uh, Evan shared with me a stat, and I, I may be getting it off a little bit, but if I remember it correctly, he said two things that are just sort of shocking to me. He said, first thing is this. He said, when it comes to sports, by the way, I like sports. Anyone else like sports pretty well? Is that it? Man, Let's just pray right now that the Spirit of God would fall on you. That we Okay, sports. There are parents in our community who think that their kids are going to go pro, and some of yours may. But here's the deal. Evan shared a stat. He said, look, people whose kids go through all the sports camps, who do all the stuff, did you know, statistically speaking, a child's chance of going pro is less than .00. Zero, one percent. So you work hard to make sure Johnny or Julie gets all the right teaching and everything else and you think that's where it's going to be and you pour everything into it. And by the way, I'm not against sports. I love sports. They're great. But then he made a comment. He said, and I may get this one off slightly, but the numbers are close. He said, but by the time a young person, a young man in particular, is in their mid to late teens, over 60% of them will be addicted to or frequently looking at pornography. Zero, zero, one percent chance of being a sports pro. Sixty percent chance of being captured by something that can control their life forever. And the question is, where are we stewarding our time, our money, our resources, even just with our own children, and I'm not saying if you have your kids and sports stuff that that's bad. I'm simply saying that a steward says, I've been given a limited time, limited money, limited resources, limited abilities, and how I use them matters. Do I use them for temporal, temporary, me-centered things, or do I recognize everything comes from God, is for God, and to the glory of God? The difference, if you want to follow Jesus, is you say, I'm a steward I will do what you call me to do. I will use what you give me for the benefit of others, for your glory and my good. A steward is someone who says, what I have is on loan from God. I don't know where you are this morning, but I want to leave on a note of encouragement because one of the things that happens, I think, in church, we often will make these comments and people either go away and they're not moved, and so we try to hit real hard and I know this because every week I'll have people come up and go, whew, that was a great lesson. Oh, thanks, thanks. They say, yeah, I felt so guilty after you were over. It was a great lesson. I'm like, that's not the point. So some, we, we, we feel guilty, and then others, we just don't feel it at all. Here's what I want you to hear, though. Here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I want you to hear. How the owner is patient with wayward tenants. The first time I sinned, the owner did not smite me. He lovingly said, come on, let's change. The owner said, I've given you resources and opportunities. Come on, let's grow. Here's what I need you to know, that if you are here this morning, and if you are hearing this, then the mercy of the owner is available to you And if you, like I have for so much of my life, if you've lived like an owner and not a steward, then the good news is there is time to change. And the owner says, oh, dear one, you just just walk with me. Because the good owner God wants good things for you. And he will continue to walk with you.